You're listening to a podcast about brain health in diverse America. The goal of this podcast is to inform listeners about the latest research on healthy brain aging and risk factors leading to cognitive impairment and dementia. While the scientific community knows that aging affects brain health of Black, Hispanic, and European Americans quite differently, we still don't know the why and the how that this happens. This podcast will closely examine healthy and unhealthy aging in America as we discuss themes especially relevant to Black and Hispanic Americans. I'm Dr. David Johnson, Director of the California Alzheimer's Disease Research Center in the East Bay, and one of many scientists working on the Diverse Vascular Cognitive Impairment and Dementia Study. This podcast is a production of the National Institute on Neurological Disorders and Stroke, the grant-funded Diverse Vascular Cognitive Impairment and Dementia Study, and the UC Davis School of Medicine. This podcast is produced by Darling New Media Podcast Studios in Sacramento, California. Thank you for joining Brain Health in Diverse America. Today's guest is Dr. Rita Hargrave. Dr. Hargrave graduated from Howard University with her medical degree in 1979. She is a geriatrician and a psychiatrist. She has extensive experience in consultation liaison psychiatry, adult and geriatric psychiatry, telepsychiatry, and cross-cultural mental health. She is focused on the dynamic interaction between aging, culture, and wellness in both caregivers and older adults with cognitive problems. Dr. Hargrave has contributed to numerous public education forums sponsored by the VA in Northern California and Stanford Geriatric Education Center, the University of California Davis Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, and the Northern California Alzheimer's Association. Dr. Hargrave is also a celebrated documentarist and an expert on Latin jazz history in Northern California. Her latest documentary is The Last Mambo, and I want to welcome Dr. Hargrave for joining us here today. In this episode of Brain Health in Diverse America, our guest will talk about the importance of Alzheimer's disease in Black Americans and the health disparities that may affect its development. Welcome, Dr. Hargrave. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much for inviting me. So I know I just gave this intro for a few minutes, but um, it doesn't really do the justice that uh, you deserve. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into geriatric psychiatry and, and cross-cultural uh, wellness? Okay. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting story how I got into uh, this particular area of psychiatry. Um, my I, of course, had never seen um, a psychiatrist. I'd never seen a black psychiatrist or a geriatric psychiatrist. In fact, I didn't know they existed at all. And when I went to medical school, psychiatry was not what I was thinking about. But I uh, was fortunate enough to go to a um, um, an interdisciplinary or um, meeting, a case conference, where we had neurology, psychiatry, social work, who were examining uh, this one young, young fellow who was having a lot of troubles. Um, he was, uh, you know, I'll tell a brief story. He uh, 
had a seizure uh, disorder and he was doing okay in college, but whenever he came home, sudden he would have seizures and wind up in the hospital. So after the third time this happened, the, the family and the doctor said, well, what's going on with him? Is he not taking his medicines? Why is this happening? Um, and they brought in a psychiatrist because they didn't have a good idea of what was going on. Ultimately, what they found out uh, or the psychiatrist sort of uncovered was there was um, physical and sexual abuse at home. And his um, uh, illness gave the family a break. Uh, it was not on a conscious level, but that's what was going on. But the way that the psychiatrist told this story, it was like Sherlock Holmes. I mean, because he you know, put the pieces together, he put the family drama in there, and he came up with a clear solution and set of guidelines. I said, I, I need to be that guy. I mean, that's not Frazier, that's not sitting on the couch. This is really getting deep into what's happening with people and offering a, a, uh, a workable solution. So that's how I wound up in psychiatry, in particular, like consultation psychiatry. Uh, and so where are you gonna get a lot of consults around uh, families, it's it's at both ends of the spectrum, the young people and the older folks. So that's kind of how I wound up in geriatric psychiatry. And I also had the, the great fortune of uh, working with folks at the Stanford Geriatric Education Center, whose focus was specifically on the interface of ethnicity and aging. So they were uh, among the first to really publish a lot about how aging and health looks different in different different ethnic uh, communities. Uh, Doris Gallagher Thompson uh, was has been pivotal in terms of me going down this road. Yeah, and Gwen Yo, the two of them. Yeah, spectacular uh, geriatricians and psychiatrists, and um, that's a fascinating story. It's uh, the detective work, I think, is uh, really appealing to me as an Alzheimer's researcher. Uh, here you've got someone uh, who is suffering symptoms, and you only see them at this uh, at this point in their lives where they've lived so long, and the indelible impressions that have made them, formed them, make them much more interesting, really, than the and much more complex than the younger adults who just haven't lived and experienced as much as they and how that shows up in things like Alzheimer's disease and and psychiatric disorders um, especially geriatric psychiatry so that's fascinating um, so now the next uh, issue is a, a huge one and I want you to just take a second and explain to the listeners how do you think that race, is playing a role in the development of Alzheimer's disease. I mean, isn't it just a biological disease? Well, Alzheimer's, like most things, is partly biological, partly social, and partly psychological. So all of those things are at play. I think it's easiest for me for us to think about Alzheimer's as a medical disease with biological functions, uh, because that's how we approach most of medicine. We you go to it looking at what's what's broken and how can we fix it, um, but um, uh, only, I think, in the last couple of years have people really been willing to tackle what are these other influences like race, uh, like even our um, society that we live in, in the United States. Those things have a significant impact on um, health and, uh, and illness. Now, um, and so there's some differences that I think are, are present among African-Americans, uh, but I also think there's a lot of what we know about Alzheimer's and how we approach it, that's really the same for everybody. Now, some of the things that I think are different that we've tabulated over the years are, th are you know, three or four things. 
Um, we know that Alzheimer's often has a medical um, uh, substrate. So we know that there are comorbidities, illnesses that people have that tend to increase your risk for Alzheimer's disease. And those happen to be things that are pretty common, awfully common among African-Americans. Uh, a much higher rate of diabetes, much higher rate of obesity, a much higher rate of things like heart disease and stroke. Those, uh, they affect your total body and they particularly um, affect your brain. So that certainly is something that's a little bit different for African-Americans. Um, and you know, some of it's biological, but it's also lifestyle. It's also how much exercise do people get? What kind of food they have access to? What is the physical environment that they live in that is impacting their body decades upon decades? And again, you know, many African-Americans live in communities where there are food deserts. They live in areas where there may be toxic waste. I mean, there's a, a lot of environmental things that make those areas less appealing and cause you know, significant health issues. Um, Finally, I think the area that you in particular are interested in and is even tougher to tackle is what is the impact of cumulative stress and marginalization? I mean, we because it has an effect on your body. I mean, it just it just does. But how you how you quantify that, how you measure that, and how can you over a life a lifespan uh, see what that does to the body? So those are some of the things that I think are particular to African-Americans. You know, they're also true of other, other marginalized ethnic groups like Latinos, but we have uh, a lot of uh, interest in looking at how those differences affect the long-term health of African-Americans. Um, now, what's the same? The same, I'd say, is the fear and stigma of, of dementia, of Alzheimer's disease. No matter who you talk to, nobody wants to get dementia. Their families are totally freaked out. Everybody's in denial. That's, that's across the board. Um, I think um, the other thing that I increasingly see, well, I've, I've seen this all the way through, but particularly working at the VA, because I had probably 60% uh, minority patients and the rest white. But over and over again, I would hear these stories of family members being concerned and they go to their doctor and it is completely ignored or minimized. I remember one situation that and it comes up in the oddest ways because I can remember a woman uh, uh, coming into my office and she was referred for depression. And, you know, I was expected to, you know, give her the drugs and get her out of there. But when I started to ask her, what was she what was causing her more stress? And she said uh, she had moved in with her dad because the family was worried that he had become a little bit more frail. And so I said, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, I came home one, one day after work and he was asleep and there was a pot on the stove that where all the water had boiled out and the smoke detector was going on. Now there had been other things. I mean, he had a little fender bender. Uh, he was up in the middle of the night. And she said, I took him to his doctor and they said, oh, he's just getting old. And I'm thinking, how many red flags do you need to think about a cognitive problem? Uh, so, and again, it must've been uh, extremely upsetting if she brought this to me and I'm nobody's primary care doctor, but it's a common situation where it is underdiagnosed, even if, and particularly if we have minority families, there's even more of a reason to, to misdiagnose and underdiagnose this. I mean, we saw the same thing with COVID. People would come back and forth to the emergency room multiple times with these serious symptoms and say, no, no, just go home. 
So that's that's a big one, the underdiagnosis and the responsibility of medical practitioners really being held accountable for um, uh, evaluation of, of significant symptoms in older adults. So that's partly, it's partly racist, partly ageism too, because if somebody comes in with their kid and say their kid's vomiting all night, you better do something about it. But if it's your uncle or your, your granddad, you know, well, he's just getting older. Finally, the other, the other things that I think that are the same in both groups. We're talking about earthquake preparedness. We just had that tremor, that little, a little shake, and everybody knows what they're supposed to do in terms of their uh, getaway kit. We have no dementia preparedness for anybody along financial issues, along emotional preparedness, and caregiver readiness. Because it happens. I mean, some version of cognitive impairment and frailty happen in all older folks at some point in time. But is anybody sitting down before it happens to think about, well, what who's going to pay for assisted care? Who's going to pay for uh, someone to come into the house? Because most people's insurance don't take that into, into account. Uh, how does a caregiver figure out uh, what kind of care they need? I mean, it's all on the web now, but it's nothing that's that's really talked about or thought about. So that's something that's true on both sides. I think the biggest difference between uh, most African-Americans is their insurance isn't as good and they don't have any, enough money to pay for care. But we're all at fault for not preparing ourselves. I mean, look at what we do in terms of our kids. I mean, you can see right now. The kids are, you know, they've lost so much in terms of education after COVID. Everybody, rightfully so, everybody's up in arms. Nobody's doing that for old people. So that's that's a national issue. Amen. Amen. Um, I have relative, close relatives that live in um, uh, South Florida and, you know, they lost their house and they're 80 years old. What do you do? Wow. Um, that is a story uh, um, going on more and more frequently with these uh, really serious uh, um, disasters that are happening. And, you know, Houston is another place where and South Florida just has a really high concentration of old folks living there. I got to mm -hmm. tell you. And mm -hmm. now your point about earthquakes and also re really probably the more likely is the wildfires that happen throughout the West. And what are you going to do with mom and dad? And especially, how do you talk about that if there's stigma around it? So one last question about the family. I was just, um, I, I've been reflecting about what you were just saying um, about stigma and nobody wants to admit that perhaps dad has um, a memory disorder. Um, each uh, Alzheimer's disease is as much a family uh, issue or family disease, if you will, affecting the entire social network. And I wanted you to just comment for a second about uh, networks in the Black American community and how they might be uh, supportive or how they react to um, to cognitive problems. And is there always uh, somebody to take care of those folks? And and um, how do you do you do you treat those folks? Yeah, how, uh, and I know there's this uh, and, uh, this um, old line belief that there is a uh, cohesive, well-organized black community in various cities. And some cities that's true, like Atlanta, DC, um, not so much, I, I, see, I see less of it on the, on the West Coast. Um, so um, 
how that where that support network is can really vary from community to community, and it can vary a great deal in terms of socioeconomic status, because the kinds of things that me and my friends have available to us, the kind of network of middle and, and upper middle class black people, uh, is something that we have uh, nurtured for decades. We needed we've needed it for everything, for housing, for education, and I definitely see people have more informal networks um, that they can draw on. Um, now, if but the, and we have all decided that we are going to stay in this community because we've been here for so long. There are so many people whose kids have left decades ago who that who have are not necessarily in a position to move back. Uh, I mean, there was a time when your spinster uh, sister who never got married stayed at home and, she, and the expectation was that she was going to take care of mom and dad. And sometimes that happens, but a lot of times that's that's not true. That's not available. Uh, I think we can do even more outreach than we have uh, with the traditional networks of um, churches. I mean, they have been um, a network that people have drawn on. But I think an incredibly untapped network are people who are already in healthcare. Uh, just for in the last uh, couple of months, I've been doing a series of Alzheimer-related um, caregiver uh, forums for Kaiser employees. Think of how many uh, uh, middle and older uh, women who are pri the primary caregivers are working in these healthcare networks. That's and, and many a minority. This is the first, and I, I don't know since these are all Zoom meetings, I don't know what percentage of them are African-American, but I do know that when it comes to be questioned, I tend to get them from the African-Americans. So that's a network that we could do more to outreach that in addition really, to schools, in addition to uh, churches. That's really fascinating. Yeah, that's um, identifying natural occurring social networks and yeah. people who who take who tend to take care upon themselves and to go in those ponds, if you will, and educate and uh, provide the resources that they desperately need. I think also uh, another network of senior centers, but to pr present it as part of, um, uh, what you say it, sort of health education in terms of how to be a caregiver. Because at some point, if you're living with somebody, one or the other, you guys are going to get ill and need some assistance. So, so it's not just sort of stigmatized around Alzheimer's, that is how can you be an effective caregiver? How can you sort of reorganize your life, have a, a productive dialogue with someone's primary care doctor? I mean, there's so many pieces of it that can be embedded in a less scary way than your, your granddad has Alzheimer's and he's going to go in a nursing home and you have to take care of everything. Mm -hmm. So I, th I think thinking ahead, how do you sort of prepare people for, for the challenges of it? And particularly the financial challenges of it. And I've been struck by when we've had um, forums, I think um, that uh, UC Davis's program, I think I can remember at least one occasion where they specifically had a financial and legal um, expert there. People wake up when you start talking about their money. Yeah, the, that uh, having run that wellness conference for a number of years, that is always the most popular and uh, well-regarded yeah. in all the satisfaction surveys, people are hungry for that kind of information. And they want to 
they want to do the right thing. They want to prepare, but there's very few um, handles, if you will, on the problem to get it, get their, to, to help them get into it and to solve that. Um, and it is a pretty scary problem if you're talking to wills and, uh, and advanced care planning and things like that. That's, um, that's overwhelming for everyone, but so essentially important. So, and that's really interesting how you see those issues differ in the black American communities and, um, and, and just the need for it being even more stark than these, um, than your American communities, just by, based on access. Um, I mean, I think it's access, but I think it's also a, a style of, uh, certainly in working class and middle class families, uh, you don't want to burden your kids with your financial issues. So you don't tell them anything. I mean, I mean, I remember when my parents, when I was applying to college, this was the first, and they, they had to fill out the financial aid form. I had no idea what my, how much money or how little money my parents made until they filled out those financial aid forms. And up until the very end, they were not giving up any information about how where the uh, bank accounts were, how much, what was the mortgage. It's like, I need to just take care of myself and you go ahead and do what you need to do, as opposed to rich people who many times are thinking about endowments and figuring out how, who's going to manage this money and where it's going to get dividend. All of that is, is you know, part of uh, a discussion that goes on for, for decades. But among many black families, you know, we don't say anything about, about, about your money. Mm -hmm. So Fascinating. Um, so here's, um, tell, you've been uh, uh, such an experienced clinician for so long. You've seen so many families. You've seen helped so many folks. Tell me if you can narrow it down. What's the most important health disparity that we should be looking at in in and Black Americans that we should be investigating better, and especially something that helps uh, that would help or or excuse me not help it's the bad, wrong term to develop alzheimer's disease um, yeah i think again it's those um those health behaviors those brain healthy behaviors that we often don't think about until we're in late middle age when things start falling apart if we could move people to think about this earlier on i mean the the usual stuff diet, exercise, and stress reduction. But again, we often do not address this until we get ill. And a lot of times people will say that this isn't a priority of mine. I won't worry about that until I get older. It's like the damage is done. It's like way too late. Uh, and, and hopefully that thoughts of particularly about things around stress reduction and exercise and diet, that it gets introduced early from the kids in public schools, in grade school, and it gets carried over, gets carried over and it's recognized as an important part of uh, how you run your life mm -hmm. all the way through. So it's not a surprise that, you know, all because I've had a, like, a number of friends who uh, have, you know, significant family risk factors for high blood pressure, diabetes, and obesity. And they say, well, you know, that's not going to happen to me. And 
all through their uh, early adulthood, middle age, they say, well, I don't need to, I don't have time to deal with that. I have to work and I have to put my kids through school. So this is not a priority of mine. So that's like another 25 years where you just put it on the back burner and they don't do anything about it until they have a major health event in their 60s, you know, heart attack, stroke. Now, all of a sudden you're saying, Oh, yeah, yeah, I should have done something about that. Well, if we had sort of encouraged people, and again, I think a lot of this is advertising because I'm looking at a heck of a lot of Black people on television selling high blood pressure medicines, all of a sudden. So if we could find a way to have that health education not tied to selling something, I mean, I'm glad they're doing it, but if we could have it tied to an overall approach to health earlier on, then it wouldn't be as much of a uh, challenge uh, as you get older. My, I mean, my dad was a perfect example of how you do this, because I'm always struck by when I think about, uh, he lived to be about 95, 95, I think. And you know, he had some cognitive problems towards the end, but when I look at how he managed his life, I keep wondering, how did he know that he was supposed to do all this stuff? I mean, it's like he read the book in terms of exercise, diet, stress reduction, keeping focused. I, I don't know. I mean, and and I, it's sort of reflected in how I have uh, run my life, just based on the way that he has. So if you can set up those models early, it becomes a priority throughout your life. Then you'll be whatever happens to you when you get older, you'll be in a better position to manage it. Um. That's, I think, the best uh, advice is prevention is worth a pound of cure. Uh, yeah. I will uh, disagree with you, perhaps just a touch, that even older adults starting to exercise and diet have great benefits. Maybe they don't become, you know, 25 years old again, but they do respond. And the benefits are, in some ways, more apparent and because they're uh, so out of shape, frankly, and their numbers are terrible for the cholesterol and the A1Cs and the and their body weight. And then once they start to lose a little bit of weight and take some control, they are reinforced even more than the young adults. And so exercise is great all across your life. Yes, yes. I would agree with you. I've, I've had some friends come to this, these come to Jesus moments when the doctor said, if you don't do something different, you won't be here next week. And they've followed up on that. And even they are amazed at not only uh, the health benefits, but the social benefits that they are more present. They have more energy. They're more, there's more gratitude. It means all of us there, the stress is reduced. And I mean, I've been flapping my lips about this for like decades, but until you actually walk down that path and see that change, it's, it's kind of hard to accept it, but you're right. I think older, and I think older folks, as we all say, we're all circling the drain at various rates, but no matter how fast you're circling it, you'll probably do a better job of it if you are healthy. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the uh, God-given truth there. Um, we're all going to be facing challenges in late life. Let's go into them as strong as we can to, to shoulder that, uh, that health burden. And also be a model for those who are younger than we are. Because I, I'm so many times I'll have uh, people in their 20s and 30s and 40s and say, well, how do you do all that stuff? Well, I said, I've been in training for a long time. Thank you very much for speaking with us today on diverse vascular cognitive impairment and the Brain Health in Diverse America program. Your insights are wonderful. And we really thank you for all that you've done across your entire life and continue to do every day. So thanks, Dr. Rita. And 
It's been great having you on. We look forward to having you on again at some point in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Brain Health in Diverse America. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen to our show by asking your smart speaker to play the Brain Health in Diverse America podcast. And please rate us on your favorite podcast app. Brain Health in Diverse America is brought to you by the NIH grant-funded Diverse Vascular Cognitive Impairment and Dementia Study and the UC Davis School of Medicine. To learn more about participating in our nationwide Diverse Vascular Cognitive Impairment and Dementia Study, click on the link in the episode description. Any questions or comments, please email us at diversevcid, all one word, at ucdavis.edu. And thanks for listening.